3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. Good morning, Inez. Good morning, Leila. Good morning, everyone. Um, how are you going today? Loaded question. Pass. Everybody pass. Um, oh, well, uh, welcome back to Thursday morning breakfast. It is Thursday, the 9th of February. So we are, yeah, we're all the way. We've blown past January, um, a whirlwind month. Everybody's, huh, I assume, getting back into the groove of things with work. And um, we have, as usual, some important coverage of Things that are, uh, well, many of the rolling crises that continue to to go mm. on. Um, so maybe I'll start off with um, what I'll be conducting an interview on today. So geographer Hannah Delabosca joins us to discuss the phenomenon of seeking sensory comforts to insulate against the physical effects of climate change. And Hannah's currently a PhD candidate and research assistant at the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. And her work and expertise spans generational coal mining, communities, community resilience, and energy transitions. Then we'll hear an edited expert of Jabarang, Gunail and Gurjumara woman, Senator Lydia Sorb, speaking at the Australian-Palestinian Advocacy Network, inaugural Palestinian Solidarity Conference from the 27th to the 29th of January. Senator Sorb participated in the opening plenary of the conference, organising for Palestine on stolen land, solidarity and intersectionality. Then, major flaws have been flagged in an updated Cochrane Cochrane review published last week. It is the latest review to suggest that face masks don't work in the community. Today, Raina McIntyre joins us to shed light on some of the underlying issues within the review and how we can make more informed decisions when it comes to safeguarding ourselves and our community against infectious disease. And finally, as Victorian homes face up to 25% increase in gas prices this week, Environment Victoria has renewed calls to the Victorian government to break the state's addiction to polluting gas. We will be joined by Sarah Rogan, Climate Campaign Manager from Environment Victoria. Sarah is a senior campaigner with a values-driven approach to human rights and social justice. She is an advocate, gender expert and respected leader who has had over 15 years' experience in rights-based activism. Today, we will be discussing the impacts of gas usage, what the Victorian government is doing to move away from gas and how these strategies could be improved or accelerated to better support residents. Awesome. Yeah, I think I'm really excited about the interview with Raina McIntyre in particular, um, considering that obviously COVID has not ended. We need to keep, you know, masking up, uh, keeping our communities safe, making sure that we are really thinking carefully about events that we attend in person. Um, 
because at the end of the day, this is not over, and there are still so many members of our community who are disabled and immunocompromised who have really been left behind. Um, and yeah, we can't we can't afford to, um, you know, have a mentality that that leaves any members of the community behind. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear what Raina has to say on that. But you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Wow, carries the stories of our ancestors forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldem Chogo Edwards, for Balamwa, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing Bikers Against Child Abuse Backer exists to create a safer environment for abused children we exist as a body of bikers to empower children to not feel afraid of the world in which they live. We stand ready to lend support to our wounded friends by involving them with an established, united organisation. If you would like to know more about Backer, please visit our website at bacaworld.org or call 1-800-692-222. A 3CR supporter. And we're back and these are the news headlines for Thursday the 9th of February. An earthquake affecting southern Turkey and northern Syria has resulted in deaths of more than 9,000 people, making it the deadliest seismic event in 10 years. More than 30,000 people have been injured, and authorities expect the death toll to continue to rise across the widely affected areas. Shipments of life-saving aid to people in rebel-held areas of northern Syria have been cut off. With the sole border crossing from Turkey disrupted by Monday's earthquake and aftershock. The Syrian regime has been accused of playing politics with humanitarian aid after the ambassador to the UN said the regime would control delivery of all aid in Syria, including rebel held areas in the north, where as many as 4 million people are already dependent on aid to survive the winter. Also in headlines, Victoria Police have withdrawn charges against two First Nations Black Lives Matter rally organizers this week and were ordered by the court to pay legal fees. Ganayan Gunichamara woman Mariki Onis and Amangu Yamachi woman Crystal McKinnon were accused of breaching public health orders by organizing a Black Lives Matter protest during a COVID-19 lockdown in 2020. The prosecution acting for the police withdrew the charges on Tuesday, with the judge noting that the charges were, quote, mangled and inaccurate. Ms. Onis and Ms. McKinnon thanked supporters outside the court and emphasized their solidarity with people and groups fighting for justice to end racism and ongoing violence. In other news, the federal government has announced new funding to tackle crime in Mapantwe and First Nations community leaders in the Northern Territory are concerned about how it will be administered and spent. $250 million will fund initiatives aimed at improving employment, health outcomes and rates of domestic violence. Community leaders say it is essential the Federal and Territory governments work with First Nations leadership to allocate the funds, 
with concerns raised about the lack of accountability of services operating in the area for many years. Alcohol bans have also been reinstated in communities and town camps across the Territory, with some Arante elders who have seen years of alcohol reform in the area saying it isn't the solution. And finally, in news headlines this week, former Green Senator Lydia Thorpe has quit the Greens Party in order to pursue and amplify the black sovereign movement. Senator Thorpe will join the crossbench as an independent, where she says she will be able to better speak freely on all issues from a sovereign perspective. Thorpe says the Greens' indication that they will support the voice to Parliament is at odds with the community of First Nations activists advocating for a treaty before voice. And uh, since that announcement, there's also been a statement put out by uh, the Black Greens, uh, the First Nations organizers within the Greens party, saying that they are supportive of Senator Thorpe uh, in her actions and are also supportive of what Senator Thorpe had been advocating for in terms of a treaty before voice. And these have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 9th of February. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to head to a track. This one is Neon Moon by Maisha and the Warabinda Singers. Mm. The sun goes down on my side of town. The lonesome feeling comes to my door. There's a rundown bar across the railroad tracks At a table for two, away in the back Where I sit alone and think of losing you I spend most every night beneath the lights of a neon moon Running wild and free I close my eyes And sometimes see You in the shadows Of this smoke-filled room No telling how many tears I've sat here and cried Or how many lies That I've lied Telling my poor heart Oh 
just heard from Maisha and that was Neon Moon which is very relaxing and now maybe for a bit of a pump up tune we'll listen to Days Gone By by Dirty Vegas and Pira.
That was Days Ago By by Dirty Vegas and Pira. And now we yeah. are going to go to a Camp Cope track. Um, I just wanted to uh, shout out Camp Cope, uh, who have done so much incredible, made so much incredible music over the years, but also have just done so much incredible transformative work around, uh, you know, heteropatriarchy and gender, um, you know, dynamics and, you know, basically abuse and violence in in the music industry in Australia. So, you know, massive shout out to Camp Cope. We're going to be playing Running with the Hurricane, which is the title track of their latest album. But I also wanted to uh, remind listeners that their last ever concert in Melbourne is going to be the Brunswick Music Fest. And that will be Camp Cope and Barca at Estonian House on March 11th. So that's during the Brunswick Music Festival, which goes from the 5th to the 13th of March. And you can find out more details uh, by heading to Linktree, or that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Camp Cope. Um, but for now, running with a hurricane.
Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together. Worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy, Aha, Pansexual, Knowing No Boundaries of Sex or Gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.26 in the morning. You just heard Running with the Hurricane by Camp Cope, who will be doing their final performance, last ever Melbourne show at Brunswick Music Fest with Barca at Estonian House on March 11th. Uh, So this is during the Brunswick Music Festival, which goes from the 5th to the 13th of March. And you can find out more and get tickets by... Heading to Camp Cope on social, so that's at camp underscore cope on Instagram, or you can find tickets uh, at l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash Camp Cope. So, yeah, encourage people uh, to get out and see Camp Cope if you haven't already. This will be your last opportunity to do so in Melbourne. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Commons Conversations is a series of podcasts in which campaigners share their experiences and insights into activism, learning in movements, radical history and more. Produced by the Commons Social Change Library, it focuses on lessons learnt from involvement in First Nations, disability, 
AIDS, climate justice, wage theft, disaster recovery and other campaigns. To listen to the series, visit www.3cr.org.au slash acting up. Robbie Thorpe. I'm doing Black and Deadly on Fridays from 11 to 12 o'clock. Looking at all the best uh, Black and Deadly music, entertainers, and performers around this country. Uh, join me then from 11 to 12 Fridays, Community Radio, 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30 p.m. on 3CR Community Radio. And you are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. It is now almost, well, it's 7.29 in the morning. I was going to say almost 7.30, but it feels so imprecise when we're uh, over 30 seconds away. Um, we are now joined by geographer Hannah Delabosca to discuss the phenomenon of seeking sensory comforts to insulate against the physical effects of climate change. Hannah is currently a PhD candidate and research assistant at the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney, and her work and expertise spans generational coal mining communities, community resilience, and energy transitions. Hannah, thanks so much for joining me. Good morning, Priya. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to, to talk about this topic because I think um, having done interviews previously with uh, Emma Bacon from Sweltering Cities, I got to look at some of the more... Um, you know, uh, the, the broader infrastructural concerns um, around climate change mitigation and adaptation and, and those kinds of experiences. But I thought we could begin here by talking about the significance of analyzing the effects of and responses to climate change at the level of individual bodies. So can you tell us what this reveals and why you find it interesting and maybe link this into a definition of implicit climate change denial, which I understand is quite uh, different from, I guess, most people's understandings of what climate change denial is? Yeah, so there's been a lot of research into climate change denial, what it is and where it comes from. Uh, we know that denial takes a few different forms. Um, historically, we've seen this kind of overt denial, which is a disbelief that human-caused climate change is occurring at all. Um, this was created and encouraged by fossil fuel companies and their supporters for over five decades. Um, and it was, it's been really influential, but today that kind of overt denial is relatively rare. Um, a second type of denial is where people acknowledge that climate change is happening, but don't actually consider it a serious problem. 
and, and a third type, and likely the most common, is implicit denial, in which climate change is intellectually recognised as a threat, but without any significant corresponding changes in everyday behaviour. Um, and that also relates to political prioritisation, um, the way that we talk about climate change. Um, so there's been a real focus on how knowledge and social and political beliefs influence how people perceive and respond to climate change through forms of denial. Um, but what we've been working on is that thinking about denial as a purely cognitive process kind of overlooks the role of our everyday physical experiences as a really important way of how we construct our knowledge of the world and what's happening. Mm. So, so thinking about climate denial through the experiences of individual bodies um, we can kind of expand our understanding of denial beyond knowledge and belief and into the realm of experiencing and feeling, which is a really fundamental way that we as humans um, construct our realities and understand what they are. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that, that sort of first uh, interface that we have with the effects of climate change is through our, our senses. So yeah. this is yeah a, a really interesting way of looking at it. So your work on implicit or implicatory climate denial through seeking these sensory comforts of climate control um, emerged from a research project that you were involved in, which studied people's experiences of shock climate events. So can you tell us a bit more about the research that you undertook, particularly in the case of the 2016 and 2017 Penrith heat wave? What were you investigating there and, and what did you find? Yeah, so as part of our research at Environment Institute, um, we collaborated with uh, the local government and Resilient Sydney to because we wanted to explore what factors make communities more or less resilient across different types of disaster events. Um, so we looked at bushfires, we looked at storms and flooding, we, and we looked at heat waves. Um, all of which Sydney is particularly prone to. So as part of that research, we asked local residents in Western Sydney who had experienced that specific heat wave, what made the, that, that experience easier to cope with and what factors made it more difficult in their own experience? So distinct to other types of research, we left it really open. We were just like, what happened? What changed in your life as a result of that event? Um, so we took a really broad approach to understanding heatwave impacts uh, because a lot of the research around heat focuses on health, uh, like mortality, mm. um, hospital admissions. So we're really interested in the more nuanced um, aspects of community experiences. And heatwaves are a really interesting event because they're invisible and most people don't really consider them to be particularly dangerous even though they kill more people than all other disaster events combined. So mm. that's the starting point. Um, so when we asked participants in Western Sydney what helped and what made it harder, uh, really unsurprisingly, air conditioning was a central factor. So households without access to private air conditioning experienced a huge range of disruption. Um, that included physical uh, physical impacts, emotional impacts, and spatial disruption in which they were forced to leave their homes mm. because they were too hard or seek out spaces that they could actually get that physical sensory relief. Um, on the other hand, people who had air conditioning experienced a really reduced 
um, range of impacts. It was primarily around financial concerns of how to pay for air conditioning. And so that's a that's still a really big impact for a lot of people. Um, but what is more interesting to us is that this technology could eliminate or largely eliminate the negative physical and emotional impacts of the heat itself. And because it's an invisible, it doesn't have a, you can't see a heat wave. Mm-hmm. In being able to modify local, like your, your household, it's kind of like the heat wave isn't happening at all. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a groundbreaking discovery uh, that air conditioning helps with heat waves. Um, <laughs> but the difference in community experiences was, as with so many things, linked to people's socioeconomic status, to their um, to their ability to access this technology. Mm-hmm. So it's a just kind of like it links into justice issues, um, and it also prompted us to think more expansively about the social and political impacts of not experiencing physical or emotional disruption mm-hmm. during a climate extreme. So it kind of, it, it made us wonder whether denial is also a literal practice of distancing yourself mm. from climate extremes. So yeah. this, is, this is completely distinct from a person's beliefs on climate change and instead is about how successfully they can literally and physically distance themselves from being personally affected. Mm. And there's a real tension in this that it comes from the fact that it's an entirely rational and reasonable thing to do. So the issue comes because it's only available to people with relative wealth and privilege. And relative, I say relative, Mm -hmm. (laughs) relative. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, I think um, it's it's really interesting because obviously the the framing here is not necessarily saying, oh, you know, if you do have access to air conditioning, that's something you should be limiting your use of. As you said, it's a perfectly rational kind of, yeah. um, you know, if if you have access to the tools to engage in local climate control so that you can mitigate the effects of a heat wave, of course you're going to do that. Um, and so there is this kind of tension between the real need to address these bodily effects of climate change as extreme weather events become more frequent and then the impacts that individual adaptation strategies, and in this case, the use of air conditioning, actually then have on the environment as well as on less privileged community members because we are seeing, um, rather than looking at the distribution of climate impacts on a global scale, it's much easier uh, here to see them happening in the same suburbs. So could you uh, could you speak to... Uh, this tension in a little more detail? Yeah, I think like most things around around climate change and how we as communities are responding, it's really, really com- complex um, because the desire for comfort and safety is universal. But in thinking about climate denial, like a literal denial to deny the effects of climate extremes, um, it's possible that that can also to the realities of not only other people, but to actually what's happening and what's occurring. Um, it's, I think in thinking about the ways that we all shield ourselves from the disruptive imp- impacts of climate extremes, and that includes not only the physical impacts, but the emotional kind of overwhelming um, discomfort of facing an existential threat. <laughs> um, so thinking about climate denial in this way I hope can help move us away from the polarizing 
political and moralistic engagement on climate denial, understanding that we it's kind of a rational response. So the point is not to romanticise any suffering mm. or to demonise the technology mm-hmm. that dream events safer and more bearable for the people who are able to take advantage of them. Uh, the point is simply to, to kind of recognise that part of the way we understand the severity of the crises we face is through our own experiences of disruption mm. and that technologies that have the capacity to eliminate, eliminate those experiences may influence the degree to which people see climate change as a personal threat. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Um, yeah, and just a few points. I think that the distinction between belief and behaviour helps helps us move away from labelling people as climate deniers or not. So I'm not interested here in categorising individuals themselves as climate deniers for for kind of two reasons. Um, First, in the case of implicit denial, that's not accurate. People actually may fully consciously recognise that climate change is happening, um, but still not actually be experiencing that. And that's that's just how that works. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I think second, labelling people, especially people like who have this implicit denial, which we all kind of do, um, it leads us back into identity politics, intention and kind of abstraction. So so I think approaching climate denial from this, um, from this angle is about humanising the experience of like seeking to minimise um, our, our experiences of change and disruption. So mm. um, it's not that people who are able to physically avoid experiences of climate disruption are climate deniers. The focus is that there's technologies and strategies available to particular people mm-hmm. to avoid or even eliminate those negative climate impacts. So it's yeah. kind of, yeah, it's an, trying to understand how lived experiences of climate change are avoided um, and how that avoidance may influence how we as a community acknowledge the severity of those impacts for the people who can't avoid them. Yeah, totally. And I think um, it it also kind of raises uh, this interesting question around there's, you know, a a lot of uh, a lot of, you know, discourses um, in kind of the mainstream about individual responsibility and like this sort of neoliberal approach to, um, Mm. you know, people at the individual level being responsible for, for example, consumption patterns that are more sustainable um, rather than, um, you know, necessarily looking at the the structural impacts where, you know, there, there are massive, you know, companies that are engaged in, in activities that are, you know, continually pushing us up to that two degree point. Um, so it, it's kind of, um, it's kind of nice to have that nuance as well to be like, well, look, it's not talking about, um, culpability at the individual level for attempting to mitigate those impacts in a rational way, but actually thinking about, um, this relationship between the individual and the collective, um, and the distribution of climate impacts in a way that hopefully, I guess, encourages more solidarity and pushes back, uh, against, you know, uh, the powers that be, whether this is government or large corporations to, 
to make changes, but also to distribute these, you know, sensory uh, supports more equitably. Um, so, yeah, I was wondering if you um, had any thoughts on whether sort of productively integrating this conscious awareness of climate change as a reality might actually influence engagement in in more collective reaction, uh, sorry, collective action that's required to push for um, these approaches to climate change mitigation and adaptation and whether your work's gone in that direction. to that question is I truly don't know. I think that the first step is to recognize that we all participate in sensory denial. All of us who are able to minimize the physical and emotional impacts of what is a a scary reality Hmm. to consider that our whole world might um, be radically changing. Um, and part of that is in, in recognizing that we all kind of participate in that and that also that, that justice aspect that people, that there are unseen bodies, there are unseen ecosystems who don't have that same privilege to ignore what is happening or to avoid the impacts completely. Uh, so I think it's about kind of putting aside judgment. Mm-hmm. Or, the, or, or the loaded term of climate denial or climate denial, um, or perhaps not putting it aside because that very much still is active within our society, mm-hmm. but expanding it mm-hmm. so that we can all recognise that we participate and that in, a, in switching the focus from uh, identity and kind of blame and all of that thing, I think that offers a more productive way of understanding how we're responding or not responding. I actually don't know if, um, I think one of the greatest challenges is that it is inherently uncomfortable to think, to change, to mm-hmm. change behavior or to think about the ways that we benefit or to think about the ways that we are in a slightly, we might be in a slightly better position um, to, de- oh, the idea that climate change is bad but it's not going to affect us. Mm-hmm. I think that's a defense mechanism of sorts um, that we all kind of engage in to some degree, either that or extreme anxiety. I think it's one of the two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, but I really, I, 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 yeah, I've, I've found your work so interesting because it really um, very firmly resituates us back in our bodies and how we relate to one another in terms of, you know, the access that we have to these various, you know, adaptation strategies and, mm-hmm. um, you know, mitigating the immediate effects of climate change. So here's hoping that uh, greater awareness of that also reminds us that we're in relation with other people and we have a responsibility to to others um, as well. Um, look, Hannah, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? No, I think these kinds of topics have endless depth. And they do require that kind of nuanced engagement. So I think this is just the start of a conversation. I think it, in helping to expand how we think about climate change denial, um, that just offers a, offers a new avenue of strategies, engagement, possible. It's it's a platform for new forms of engagement, I suppose. So I I, I think it's the start of a conversation. 
and yeah, there's always hope. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I'm really excited to see where this goes, especially as there's more uh, participatory research going on uh, in in communities kind of looking at mapping climate change mitigation and adaptation. And um, so I think this is a really excellent thing to feed into that. And yeah, thank you so much for taking us through your work, Hannah. Welcome. I think I think part of this is especially for people who are interested in a positive act or like shifting towards more productive ways of engaging with climate change. This helps us approach community responses from a place of how are people responding mm-hmm. really, not how they how should people respond. Mm-hmm. And I think at least starting there, we can maybe get to the place where we can do something different. Yeah, I think that is an excellent um, an excellent way to, to sum that up. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us this morning, Hannah. You're so welcome, Priya. It was a, it was a pleasure. Uh, it was our pleasure as well. <laughs> All right, take care. Bye. And that was Hannah Della Bosca, geographer, who joined us to discuss the phenomenon of seeking sensory comforts to insulate against the physical effects of climate change. She's currently a PhD candidate and research assistant at Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney, and her work and expertise spans generational coal mining communities, community resilience, and energy transitions. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Maybe we'll just go straight into our next segment now. So uh, we're going to be hearing edited excerpts of Japarong Ganai and Gunachamara woman Senator Lydia Thorpe speaking at the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network's inaugural Palestine Solidarity Conference from the 27th to the 29th of January. And Senator Thorpe participated in the opening plenary of the conference. So this is Organizing for Palestine on Stolen Land, Solidarity and Intersectionality. Well... Obviously, you know, I think the biggest thing for, for both of us is the, is our sovereignty and our sovereign right. And, um, <clears throat> you know, sovereignty is the fact that you are part of that soil. It's, you know, the, the colonizers, when they came here, they claimed sovereignty, but they're not actually part of the soil. So you can't go to someone else's country and claim sovereignty when you're not part of the, the blood and the bones and the sweat and the soil. Um, it's, it's our inherent right as sovereign people on our own lands. And I think, you know, keeping that in mind that the, the way our struggles is what connect us. Our, um, you know, our loss, our grief, unfortunately, it's all of the, the sadness and the struggle that connects us because we understand as, um, people who belong to the land, how, how much of a responsibility that is as people. And it's a huge responsibility and, and the colonizing force don't understand that responsibility because it's about destruction, extraction, power, greed, uh, and it comes at the ultimate cost of, of our people dying as a result. So I think in terms of our solidarity, 
um, and how we perform that so that the rest of the world knows what's actually going on is to continue to um, share the platform, you know, and, and my little sister did, you know, everywhere she goes, she says free Palestine at the end of her her talk and and Gary um, wears his Palestine T-shirt everywhere he goes. I wonder if even he washes it. He wears it that much. But just, you know, seeing my sisters and my brothers in that audience yesterday just warmed my heart and it gives us strength when we're fighting our fight to know that you're out here, even though you've got a, your own fight, and how much we are connected and how much, um, you know, I was just looking at a sister in the background over there. <laughs> um, it's messages of solidarity, sister, you know, in the private message that keeps us strong. And, and I hope that that's what we can do for you in return. And, and, you know, my sister Nora, yes, was my neighbor. And just as a neighbour, we connected as black women in that street, you know, in Preston, <laughs> downtown Preston, and just knowing that we could rock up to each other's house and our kids could rock up to each other's house because we we didn't have to speak of our loss and grief. We spoke of our solidarity and strength and how we instil that in our children. And I think if we continue that every day, it doesn't have to be a rally it's it's what we do as um, sisters for me, and um, and how we strengthen each other to continue the fight. You know, there are a number of asks right now, um, and it kind of relates to voice. But um, you know, when I went into politics, I promised my people that I wouldn't sell out, and. And that's not easy um, when you belong to a political party uh, and when you are in that colonial headquarters in Canberra. It's quite a poisonous, it's very toxic. It's very, you know, when you walk into the, that building, you feel the poison in that place and it's a very, very difficult place to work in. Um, but I did promise I wouldn't sell out and it means that, you know, it, it's, it's a harder road for me to walk through. But, um, one of the things or a couple of things that we've got on the table right now with the government in terms of negotiation is that they must implement the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. It's a 30 year old report that our old people worked tirelessly on to find the solutions uh, in a way so that our people weren't dying in the prison system. We know that we live in a racist society through systemic racism and there is so much systemic racism in all of the uh, institutions that they've created on stolen land. So we must implement all of those recommendations. There are recommendations in that Royal Commission that are around mental health support for people before they even hit the justice system. There are preventative measures that builds the 
uh, resilience and, and health and well-being of our people that they won't implement. It's something that this government can do at the first sitting, just announce the implementation of the Royal Commission that was done 30 years ago. So we need to apply the pressure on the government to do that. We also need to apply the pressure on the government to implement the Bringing Them Home report, another old 20-year-old report that my mother was involved in. My mother was a co-commissioner into the Bringing Them Home report who who was told thousands of stories from people who were stolen from their families and the, the heartache and pain that they endured. Uh, so there are a number of recommendation that, recommendations that will stop the 22,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children right now that we have in out-of-home care with white people that don't understand culture, connection, language, song, dance, story. They have no idea. They're assimilating our children. Our children are going to white families and becoming assimilated. So we have 22,000 right now in out-of-home care. We need those recommendations implemented from 20 years ago. I mean, it's a no-brainer. So I've begged the Labor government to please implement these recommendations if they want the support uh, of any <laughs> anything that they put forward um, that they think is best for us. They need to do that first. They also need to uh, um, adapt the United Nations Declaration on, on the Rights of Indigenous People, which I put forward in a private senator's bill, which Labor intervened and stalled that process. So that's on the table to say, if you want us to support anything, you need to do these things first. These are 30, 20-year-old documents, recommendations from our old people that give you the solutions. It's, it's just not – it's so easy for them to do this. But they continue to push their agenda and they continue to, to listen to um, people who have been disconnected from community, who do get paid a lot of money to advise the government already – uh, and we have to remember that, you know, this colonial constitution here is only 250 years old. You know, if actually it's, it's 1901, invasion was 250, but 1901 was the inception of this colonial constitution. Now, we have the oldest constitution on the planet, First Nations people in this country. So we have to ask ourselves, and I ask you to think about this, why would we go into the colonial constitution when we have the oldest constitution on the planet? Why would we want to go in and become advisors with parliamentary supremacy over that advisory body every single minute of every single day? Why aren't we talking about real power in this country We've, you know, we deserve better. We're not, we don't want to be advisors anymore. And we don't want the government to pick those advisors. We want to self-determine our own destiny going forward. And a treaty is a way that you can also be a part of conversations around what a treaty looks like for you in this country. And I, and I think one of those things will be to rid the racism to stop destroying country.
to stop destroying families, to stop destroying the water that we all have to drink. You know, this is a treaty is about peace and a treaty is about self-determination and the end to the war on our people. And the only ones who can treaty in this country are all of those clans and nations. We don't need no peak body to advocate for us. We have our own laws and customs within our own families and clans and nations. That's who needs to treaty. And the new Charlie King, he needs to ensure that a proper sovereign treaty happens in this country because ultimately this government doesn't do anything without Charlie knowing about it. So he's complicit already taking on that crown. He's complicit in genocide and dispossession. So Charlie needs to demand that this country has a treaty with its first people, and you can all be a part of that. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was some edited excerpts of Jabarang Ganai and Gunichamara woman Senator Lydia Thorpe speaking at the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network's inaugural Palestine Solidarity Conference. And that was a panel on the 27th of January called Organizing for Palestine on Stolen Land, Solidarity and Intersectionality. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accented women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Three CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Next up, we are going to be joined by Raina McIntyre. So major flaws have been flagged in an updated Cochrane review. Published last week, it is the latest review to suggest face masks don't work in the community. The Cochrane Review's use of meta-analysis to support the idea that masks are ineffective in reducing transmission of respiratory infections has been challenged by a number of experts. Today, Raina joins us to shed light on some of the underlying issues within the review and how we can make more informed decisions when it comes to safeguarding ourselves and our community against infectious disease. Raina McIntyre is a National Health and Medical Research Council Research Fellow, Head of the Biosecurity Program at the Kirby Institute and Professor of Global Biosecurity at UNSW. 
Rainer is an international leader in emerging infections as and is involved in research on face masks, vaccines, influenza, COVID-19 and other infectious disease research studies that directly inform national and international policy and practice in communicable disease control. Good morning, Rainer. How are you? Good morning, Leila. Thank you so much for joining us. So firstly, I thought maybe you could start by going over the basic points of the latest Cochrane Review and what kind of conclusions it draws. Sure. So the Cochrane Review is one of um, several reviews done by several of these same authors over a very long period of time. Um, and they have done reviews on influenza vaccines, on masks, on, and basically, um, you know, they've had a, uh, they've, they've come out with reviews saying that influenza vaccines are not worth having and, you know, or, or, um, several of the authors on this, um, group and they've done mask reviews in the past, you know, 10, 15 years ago again, which, say the same thing. So a Cochrane review is um, a type of systematic review, um, which is where you collect papers on a similar question and combine the data from all of those papers to try and get an answer. And the reason that's done is that often individual studies aren't big enough, so they don't have enough statistical power to answer the question. So by combining the results of different studies, you can actually get an answer more than you could from an individual study, theoretically. Mm. Um, But the methodology of those reviews really matters, and mass research is quite complicated, um, and you have to compare and combine very similarly designed studies that measure the outcomes in the same way and use the same intervention. Um, And that's the biggest problem with this review. It's really combined apples and oranges. And, you know, if the apples work and the oranges don't and you combine them all, you may mistakenly get the answer that neither the apples or the oranges work. But they have just combined a bunch of studies that really should not have been combined because they were um, comparing very different interventions and very different settings. So they've combined hospital and community settings. They've combined studies where people use the masks on and off versus where the masks were worn continuously. And um, that's why they've got a Mm. um, result like this. Yeah, so thank you for going over that in kind of a more basic way because I guess the intricacies of um, meta-analysis and these randomised control trials can kind of go over my head a bit as someone that doesn't have a medical education. Um, I thought maybe next up you could go into, um, you outlined a bit about the kinds of questions that are asked in these studies. So that's obviously hugely important. Could you explain further on why it's so important, what kind of questions we are asking in research? And could you speak to some of the limitations of the Cochrane Review in more detail? Yeah. 
So um, let me just go back to a little story that tells you what underpins this Cochrane Review and why it's been a contentious issue issue for 20 years now. Uh, Longer than that, but really contentious in the last 20 years. During SARS, the first SARS in 2003, 20 years ago, um, in Canada, Toronto and Vancouver saw the same saw saw their first case of SARS at the same time. In Vancouver, they gave all the health workers N95 respirators, which are proper respiratory protection. And in Toronto, the infection control people argued that a surgical mask was the same as an N95 and that you didn't need to give people an N95. And they gave them surgical masks. Now, in Vancouver, there was no outbreak. Nobody died. In Toronto, they had a huge outbreak and lots of people died. Remember that SARS had a much higher death rate than SARS-CoV-2. So policy really matters when you're talking about people's lives. Mm. And that that um, very acrimonious disagreement has continued unfettered despite a, a sort of inquiry, much like a royal commission, into what happened in Toronto, which was published in 2006, saying that this kind of ideology and dogma about the way respiratory infections are transmitted and um, this group of authors believe that respiratory viruses are transmitted when people cough and spray it in your face, right? Large droplets, the kind of droplets you can feel landing on your face. They do not believe that, that airborne transmission is a major mode of transmission. Airborne transmission means that virus particles can linger in very tiny microscopic particles in the air for hours after the patient has left the room, right? That means that wherever you are in the building, and if it's a hospital, it's a building where there may be many patients with with COVID or flu and many health workers as well who can have asymptomatic infection. Every time they breathe, they're exhaling virus. Every time they speak, they're exhaling virus. And inside that closed setting, you get accumulation of these viral particles over time. So the longer you're in there, the greater your risk of simply inhaling the virus. It could be when you're in the elevator. It could be when you're walking down the corridor. It could be when you're in the tea room having a break. But the risk is everywhere inside a closed environment because of airborne transmission. So this belief in surgical masks being equivalent to an N95 or not working um, first of all, that, that Cochrane review has a huge contradiction in it. On the one hand, they're saying in the community, surgical masks don't work. On the other hand, they're saying that in the hospital, N95 respirators and surgical masks work equally well. So how can it work inside the hospital but not outside? That's just such a fundamental contradiction mm. that yeah. should tell you there's an agenda behind this review. And, you know, science is, is rarely unbiased. People go in with existing agendas and it's so easy to design a study to support your agenda or your biases. Uh, You just have to look back at tobacco research and the 100 years it took for science and medicine to accept that smoking was dangerous to your health. And that was because of concerted efforts and disinformation and, you know, um, uh, studies that were designed to show that smoking wasn't harmful um, and then climate science is another more recent example. So, you know, if you believe that, you know, anything that comes out of the Cochrane collaboration is, is truth, um, that's very naive, you know, because um, anyone who works in science knows that 
science can be extremely biased and selective. Um, so yes, absolutely. going back to that contradiction, how can you say it doesn't work in the community but it works in the hospital? That's ridiculous. Um, of course it works. In, if it works in the hospital, it's going to work in the community if you're in, you know, um, on a bus uh, where there's somebody, you know, coughing and sick. <laughs> Mm. And, uh, yeah, so they, they made some fun. And, you know, I, I should also say I've done the, I've led the largest body of mask randomized control clinical trials in the world. Um, and several of my trials were used in that Cochrane study. And in our trials, when we tested the N95 respirators, people wore them continuously. These were healthcare workers in the hospitals. They wore them continuously while they were in the ward. Whereas other studies that have been done, um, you know, with involving people in the same group, they've only used the, the respirators when doing a, what's called an aerosol generating procedure. So this is again going down to that belief that these viruses are only transmitted when someone splatters it all over your face, right? They do not believe you can inhale the virus, which is actually the dominant mode of transmission for influenza and for COVID. Um, and in their trials, they um, basically reflected the current flawed policy in many countries, which is you can only have higher level respiratory protection if you're doing a aerosol generating procedure. So like a mm -hmm. tracheal intubation or a bronchoscopy or suctioning of the airways, something like that, which is, you know, only a minority of health workers do those things and only a minority of the time while they're working. Um, and of course that doesn't work and we showed that in one of our trials. We compared this intermittent policy of using it just sometimes in essentially self-identified situations of risk versus wearing it continuously and only wearing it continuously when you're in an at-risk setting like a hospital actually protects you, which makes sense when you think about the way the viruses are transmitted. You're breathing it in. You're breathing it in in the elevator, in the corridor, in the tea room not just when you think someone's going to spray it in your face. So that's the fundamental difference in what these people believe, why it's wrong, and it's been proven to be wrong by, you know, heaps of very good aerosol studies that show how, virus, how viruses are transmitted and studies that have detected it in the air, viable virus in the air, even hours after the patient's yeah. left. I mean, and this is research that's been around for... 15 years plus, you know, in 2009, there was a study showing that um, mm -hmm. three hours after a patient with influenza has left the emergency department, you can still detect the virus in the air, right? Yes. So somebody who's walked in after that patient's left will likely get infected. Thank you, Raina. I think it's so important to remember that we need to take these studies with a grain of salt. You know, we want to do what's best for our community um, and thank you so much for outlining those points and giving our listeners a reminder that, yeah, the information we get from these studies may not be what you think. And it's important to look into it a little more deeply than just kind of, I guess, looking at the, you know, the shock titles that we often see on the internet. So, Raina, we're going to. I should note there's been loads of studies showing that masks work. Even a cloth mask gives you a 50% reduction in yeah. risk of getting COVID. Surgical mask, about 65%. N95, over 80%. And that's a huge, well-designed study in the US. Um, there's lots of other studies that show that they work. 
That is a great reminder. So I guess the takeaway is masks do work, people. Remember to wear your mask when you can. We want to protect each other. We're going to have to wrap it up there, Raina, but thank you for contributing your expertise. It was so nice to have you on. Thanks, Leila. Bye. We just heard from Raina McIntyre, who is a National Health and Medical Research Council Research Fellow, Head of the Biosecurity Program at the Kirby Institute and Professor of Global Biosecurity at University of New South Wales. We spoke about the latest Cochrane Review and some of the major flaws that have been flagged by experts. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Leela, take it away. So as Victorian homes face up to 25% increase in gas prices this week, Environment Victoria calls to the Australian government to break the state's addiction to polluting gas. Next up, we will be joined by Sarah Rogan, Climate Campaign Manager from Environment Victoria. Today, we will be discussing the impacts of gas usage, what the Victorian government is doing to move away from gas, and how these strategies could be improved or accelerated to better support residents. Good morning, Sarah. You're a little bit choppy there, but it should be okay. Um, Can you hear me okay? I can hear you okay. Are you hearing me all right? Yeah, I can actually hear you now. Thanks. <laughs> so let's get into it. I thought yeah. we could start with some basic background. So we're so reliant on gas in Victoria, I often find myself taking it for granted and forgetting the devastating impact it's having. Could you begin by reminding us of the major issues with gas usage, both financial and environmental? Yeah, I'd love to. And you're so right. Victorians are completely hooked on gas. And that's because the gas industry has lied to us for so many years with all of these myths about gas being natural and better for the environment, which are completely false. We know that gas is a polluting fossil fuel that is bad for the environment, the climate and bad for your health. Um, We know that gas damages our climate through the production of methane, through its production, processing, storing and transport. It releases huge amounts of methane into the atmosphere and expanding the use of gas will fuel this climate change and not decrease emissions at all. And we also know that gas is bad for our health and particularly for the health of our children. Um, Our parents and grandparents were told that gas 
was the best way to cook um, and heat our homes. But we've seen research backed by the Asthma Foundation that shows that burning gas for cooking and heating can be as dangerous as secondhand cigarette smoke, causing heart disease and around 12% of childhood asthma. Because when we're cooking and heating water in our in our homes and space heating, we're literally burning a fossil fuel within our homes. But it's nothing to feel bad about because that's what we've been told for so many years. Yeah, that is truly a great reminder. I'm a little bit horrified over here. <clears throat> I did not know about those stats. Um, so, look, it's really important that we are reducing our reliance on gas um, it's true that the Victorian government has begun to take some steps to move away from gas reliance. Could you unpack the basics of their current gas substitution roadmap? So you're right there, Layla. The Victorian government does actually recognise that gas is harmful for our health and the climate and that we need to urgently shift to efficient electric appliances powered by renewable energy in our homes. And the government have recognised this in the gas substitution roadmap, including taking some steps like making it not compulsory for new homes to be hooked up to the gas network as previously they were. The gas substitution roadmap recognises that, um, that rebates, incentives and subsidies are needed for the majority of Victorian households to be able to switch to efficient electric appliances. However, the roadmap which was released last year doesn't quite go far enough in addressing the urgency of the need to get Victoria off gas. And what we'd like to see in the roadmap, which will be reviewed this year, is some more timelines around when Victoria will be able to get off gas and additional rebate subsidies or no-interest loans for all Victorians to be able to switch off from polluting gas in their homes. We know that um, Victorians with the means um, will be able to, to switch to um, induction cooktops, replace, um, put heat pumps into their homes. But for the vast majority of um, Victorians, those upfront costs are just too much. We know that there'll be long-term savings for sure, mm. but it's the upfront costs which is what we need additional government support to ensure that renters, low-income households, people in public housing and social housing are able to switch to efficient electric appliances. Yeah, so I think it's really important to remember that a lot of people that uh, can't switch away from gas or substitute are renters and social or public housing residents. So do you think you could go into that a little bit more? Um, what would support look like for renters and public and social housing residents to move away from gas in a meaningful way? What the support would look like are things like uh, zero interest loans and offering subsidies and rebates. We know with looming winter and the skyrocketing gas prices as it is, um, there needs to be a significant plan put out by the Victorian government which will be able to support renters and that means often actually offering the incentives to landlords. So there's a reason for landlords to want to switch out either the old gas appliances with efficient electric ones. And for, for um, public housing um, residents where effectively the government is the landlord, um, a, a plan to actually you know, switch out the, 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 the gas cooktops cook and gas hot water heaters and space heaters um, with efficient electric appliances. Uh, we know the government is able to, to take those steps as they're the landlord when 
um, public housing uh, residents. And that's what we'd like to see. The energy justice element of the energy transition is hugely important for Environment Victoria and also to the to the many, many people who face the upfront costs of just being too exorbitant to be able to switch without support from the government. Yeah. So do you think um, you could outline specifically examples of clearer goals that could be executed within the gas substitution roadmap? What changes would you like to see during its review? Well, we know that ideally we need Victoria to be fossil fuel free by 2030. Uh, We know that some industries, um, heavy manufacturing, for example, will find it really difficult to switch off gas and onto alternative um, fuel sources. So that's why we really focused on households for um, in the immediate um, future. And for households, we need to see um, no interest loans, subsidies, rebates, or whether it's um, a, a rebate of say $5,000, just that, that, that's an example of what a figure could be which will support households for those upfront costs to be mm-hmm. able to, to switch. It's those sorts of measures which we'd like to see. We saw last year that there was a $250, um, basically free money from the government once you did the um, electricity compare mm-hmm. um, website. Things like that for gas would also be helpful for Victorian consumers as they're heading into winter and facing these massive um, bills. Yeah, I can definitely speak to that. Um, The gas bill is pretty much the thing that uh, really knocks me down during winter. It's really difficult, especially if you are on um, Centrelink or government support, it's just so hard to find the money to pay gas bills if you're in a rental relying on gas heating and gas cooking as I am. Um, Mm. So on that note, do you have any advice for how listeners can support the move away from gas reliance? And in particular, what kind of agency or action can renters and public public and social housing residents take to to propel change like what kind of things can we actually say to our landlords um, to kind of get it started, I guess? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that because what we're really seeing at the moment is um, a, a movement of people wanting to get off gas. And yet there's still a, a, a lack of awareness um, out there among some people about the harms of gas. And so for people to be able to talk to their friends and family about the dangers of gas to our health and environment is, is the first step. And the more people that are pushing government for stronger rebates, stronger incentives, will actually encourage the government to go further. But we do need people to actually uptake the rebates which are offered either through the Victorian Energy Upgrades Program or something new which might be announced uh, this year. Um, and what really need, and what we really need to see in that are incentives for landlords because you know um, for, for landlords who are quite wealthy they might have a number of a number of homes even putting um, putting solar panels on is is a good is a good first step because um, solar panels will obviously um, increase the savings which households can have um, when they when they switch to efficient electric appliances. So there's there's a few steps which people can take. Um, there's particular things which they can do initially, which is to take advantage of the rebates available. 
Um, you can plan ahead, and so you don't have to switch out all the gas appliances at once. Um, you can do your research before an appliance gives out and um, and replace them as they as they conk out if you have the means. Um, for some people, it might be possible to try a portable induction cooktop. You can actually buy mm-hmm. a plug-in one. Some of them start at just fifty dollars, um, which is easier than you know taking out your whole gas stove and, and gas oven. Um, and so you can get a, a plug-in appliance. Um, if you're lucky enough to have a reverse cycle aircon, you can actually use that for heating, um, which will um, which will hopefully um, have some savings as opposed to using gas heating. And then um, one of the ones which can be done now as well is improve your um, efficiency. Um, and so mm. some of those things are um, just about like draft fields or making use of the free um, program to change your light fitting. Um, so there are things like that which can be done um, at the moment. And there's a petition on the Environment Victoria website to the government about increasing the incentives for people, um, including landlords, to be able to switch to efficient electric appliances. And one of the other things that we really need to see is a plan around the workforce of who is Mm. going to do all this retrofitting. Um, We know that it's difficult to get a tradie um, to do any small job in your house at the moment, let alone the scale that's needed to retrofit the 2 million homes that are hooked up to gas in Victoria. So one of the other things we'd like to see is the government being quite proactive in working out where the electricians, plumbers, plasterers are going to come from who are going to do the enormous amount of retrofitting work that's needed. Yeah, it is a huge task at hand and I'm hoping that we can really get onto it and start focusing on that because it's it's going to be a huge help for a lot of renters and residents in Victoria. So, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been really lovely to chat and a great reminder. You're very welcome. Thank you. We just heard from Sarah Rogan. Sarah is an advocate, gender expert and respected leader who has had over 15 years' experience in rights-based activism. Today we discussed the impacts of gas usage, what the Victoria what the Victorian government is doing to move away from gas and how these strategies could be improved. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, We will catch you next week uh, where, ding, 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 it's going to be our subscriber drive. So head to 3cr.org.au, I believe, forward slash subscribe. Surely that sounds right. But um We'll be talking to you more next week about how, uh, why, sorry, you should subscribe to this wonderful radio station. We will catch you then. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.